All right. Hope you guys have some, had some good conversations. Um, I do want to say um, really grateful for the retreat that uh, if you were able to make it out there, um, I personally enjoyed time with you guys. Um, a lot of good things. Um, played some ball until like 1, 1.30 at night. Um, even hearing from Pastor Allen, I didn't think he would blunder the book of Haggai two times, but that he did. Um, but it was good. Also enjoyed some new words, or enjoyed learning some new phrases, too. Um, yes. So somebody called me cracked on the basketball court. At first I thought it was, you know, I don't want to be cracked, like, on drugs. You know, sounds negative to me, but, yeah, I found out what it means. So thank you for that compliment. I also heard that, uh, you know, tasty food is bussin' bussin'. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever use that again, but now I know what that means. And also, I, I did call Jeremy and Na uh, Nathan um, pushing pee. Is that right? So, yes. It might come out in a sermon again sometime. <clears throat> but, yeah, really enjoyed the time. And so if um, you, however, were not able to make it with us at retreat, um, we did miss you. Um, wished you were there. Um, but we hope that it wasn't a huge loss, um, that, you know, for the rest of the school year, that you'd still feel like you're a part of Beacon, and that we can continue to deepen and build relationships with each other. All right, let's um, pray as we dive into God's Word. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you that we can come quietly, humbling ourselves before your Word. God, your Word is what gives us life because it not only shows us how we fall short, uh, it shows us the hope of Christ and the light of the gospel. So Father, would you impress upon us deeply our, our sinfulness in light of the law, but also the grace of Christ that he redeemed us from the curse of the law. So would the Spirit of God now open our eyes to the truth of your word, uh, that we would be transformed by it. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. Amen. So we find ourselves back in Galatians chapter 3. We're uh, looking at chapter 3, verses 10 to 29. Turn there in your Bibles uh, if you have them. I want to ask, um, if you were to take your phone or your camera and record um, a friend of yours on campus, um, and uh, by permission, obviously, but uh, an unbelieving friend, non-Christian friend, and, and you were to watch uh, this movie unfold, what story would your friend's life tell? What would you say is most important to him? What would your friend most deeply care about? You know, what moves him? What does she live for? Is it her grades? Is it his career prospects? Is it just having fun and living the college life? Is it the approval of her parents? Is it his relationship with his girlfriend? Is it her friendships and, and being close with them? What is the most important reality in your friend's life? For the Jews, the most important reality was that they were the people of God. It was what set them apart from the Gentiles. And for the Jews, it was that they were given 
the law of God, the law of Moses. We call that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That was their ultimate defining reality, circumcision, food laws, ceremonial observances. The Jews had a high view of the Mosaic law. Jewish teachings said that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah was eternal. The Jews thought that the law was binding, enduring forever to the end of history. So you can see why the law of Moses was such a big deal to the Jews and why in our book, why the Galatian believers were being drawn away by false teachers who said, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but don't neglect God's holy and righteous law. You have to keep that too. But as we've been learning in our book, Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. Everything changed with the coming of Christ. Galatian believers, let me tell you why you cannot go back to the Mosaic law. And this is a question that we have to ask ourselves as well. If the gospel changes things, how are we as Christians in the new covenant age, how are we to think about the Mosaic law? What is the function of the law of Moses? So Paul answers for that, uh, answers for us in our passage tonight. The key idea of this whole section, Galatians 3, 10 to 29, is that the promise of God is greater than the works of the law. You see it in your notes there. The promise of God is greater than the works of the law. And the passage is long, so we're going to read it in three chunks. So the first section answers the question, why can't righteousness be based on the law? I'll read from verse 10 to 18. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. We'll stop there. So which came first, Abraham or Moses? The Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant? Well, verse 17 says that 430 years passed between the Abrahamic covenant when God promised Abraham, and the Mosaic Covenant, when the law was given to Israel. Why is that important to Paul's argument here? Because it answers the all-important question for the Jews. How does the inheritance come? Does God give an inheritance 
based on Israel's perfect obedience to the law, or does God give an inheritance based on a promise? So this question is important because if you look back at this chapter in verses 2, 3, and 5, Paul is speaking to believers who have already received the Spirit, the promised Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a pledge of our inheritance. He's a down payment of the inheritance to come. So if these Galatian believers received the promise of the Spirit through faith, and yet at the same time believed the the inheritance was based on law, then that would mean that God isn't going to follow through on the pledge. That would mean that the inheritance is not based on promise. It's going to be based on their obedience to the law. If you make the inheritance based on law, you would be negating God's promise and putting yourself under a curse. And Paul says, verse 11, you're under a curse because you have to keep all things, abide by all things in the book of the law. And we know that nobody, nobody apart from Christ can do that. If you remember when Alessandro preached, maybe a month ago now, he gave this illustration with John, his little boy, and Alessandro. Uh, Alessandro would promise uh, and, and gift John a Ferrari, right? And then John uh, would pay him back with some little toy cars. And we saw how ridiculous that is. And that's a picture of what we do when we try to earn God's favor through our inadequate works. I want to use that illustration, but change it up a bit. So let's say that you're out here at Lighthouse on a Sunday morning, and you go out to the playground, and you see John riding one of those playground cars. And so Alessandro comes over to John and says, hey, I love you, John, and I see how much you enjoy riding these cars, and I'm going to get you one of these. Um, But I promise you, son, that when you are older, when you're 18, I'll get you something better. You know, I'll give you a Ferrari. 14 years have passed, and true to his word, Alessandro, he gives John a brand new Ferrari. Let's say that John gets into UCLA, is part of AACF, and he's going to Lighthouse. It would be unthinkable if John said, forget the Ferrari. Now, I'll keep it in the garage. I liked that toy car that I drove around when I was four, and that's what I'm going to use to drive my friends out to Lighthouse. That's what I'm going to use to drive after I graduate, drive to work every day. That's what I'm going to use when I get married to someone like Ruthann. I'm going to take her out to nice places, great restaurants, and she's going to be happy that we're in this little tiny car for the rest of our lives, right? That's what it looks like to go to the Mosaic Law. Uh, to depend on our own righteousness. I have this Ferrari that I can drive around, that I can use, but instead of using this, I'd rather push myself around in a little toy car to do this exhausting, impossible, and enslaving task for the rest of my life. Now, what's wrong with this picture? When you make the inheritance based on law, Paul says you will be cursed, and you will negate the promise. You will belittle the gift. You will make nothing the grace of God. The promise of God is so much greater than the works of the law. So this leads us to a natural question. Well, if it's all about the promise and this law can't give you righteousness, 
then why did God give the Mosaic law in the first place to Israel? And that answer is found in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. The law exacerbates sin. The law aggravates it. The law was given to Israel to show the seriousness of our sin and our need for faith in Christ. I'm going to read that whole paragraph, that section there, from verses 19 to 22. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now uh, verses 19 and 20 can be a bit confusing. And what you need to know here is basically that the law is inferior to the promise for two reasons. One, because the law required mediation. You have the law being given from God to angels to Moses, who's the intermediary, and then to the people of Israel. On the other hand, the promise was just God directly speaking to Abraham. Now, secondly, a promise depends on one party fulfilling it, whereas the law... Uh, which is a conditional covenant, it requires more than one party, that both parties have to fulfill their part. So all that to say, the promise of God is greater than the works of the law. So let's go back to the question, why did God give the Mosaic law to Israel? The law, it says, ex- or because of transgressions. And that phrase there is, is tricky to understand uh, exactly what Paul's talking about. But I think a good word for it is that the law exacerbates sin or intensifies it. One interpretation of this phrase says that the Mosaic law was given to reveal sin or to define sin. And I think that's a part of it. Romans 4.15 says, The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And this is what Paul says about himself in Romans 7, he says, I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So let's say you're driving and you approach a busy intersection. Would it be wrong to run a red light? I mean, that's obvious, right? But what if you didn't know that running a red light was against the law? Well, it doesn't matter. It's still wrong. The law's in place, and the officer can cite you for that. But even if you didn't know technically that that was against the law, it would still be wrong because you know in principle that if you do that, you would be endangering the lives of the drivers around you. So what the law does is it reveals the sin. It tells you that it is wrong. But it was more than that. The law also increases sin. The law increases sin. Romans 5.20 says, The law came in to increase the trespass. But increase in what sense? So the law told Paul, for example, in Romans 7, that you shall not covet. But Romans 7.8 says this, Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me 
all kinds of covetousness. The law brought it out. It made Paul aware of just how covetous he was. It made him want to do it even more. And we understand this. I mean, when we were told as a kid, don't do this or that, you know, don't play with your chopsticks, don't hit your sister. I mean, hearing that makes you want to do it, you know. Hearing that makes you aware of how much you want to go against that command by your parent. Why is that? Well, because there's something in us already called the flesh, indwelling sin, the corruption that we inherited from Adam. Indwelling sin comes alive and makes you want to transgress. The law shows you the power of sin. So the law tells you what sin is, and it also increases it, and it also exacerbates it. So notice the word used in our passage is transgressions. We rightly say that sin means missing the mark. It means you broke the law. And this is not just... um, or sorry, sin is uh, like that you're completely um, off the perfect standard of righteousness, that you've missed the mark. But transgression adds a different sense to sin. It, it means that you broke the law, and this is not just some abstract set of regulations. This is you breaking God's law. And that's what all sin is. It is always ultimately against God. So let's say you're a parent and you bring your kid to the playground. There's a sandbox and your kid wants to play in it and there's another girl there playing with the sand. So your child already knows not to be mean, be loving, you know, be kind, but technically you've never said don't throw sand at another kid. But your child should know not to do that already. But to be clear, you let him know, hey, don't throw sand at the other little girl right there. And when you turn away, your rebellious son does exactly that. Now, it would have been bad you know, if you didn't say anything and he threw sand at the girl. But the fact that you did tell him and he did that right after, it adds to the offense. Uh, your, your kid, your child is directly opposing you, transgressing your command, made clear to him. And that's what the law does. It shows how great our evil is because we transgress a good command from a good God. Not throwing sand at another girl, that is a good instruction, good command. Romans 7.13 says, through that which is good, through God's law which is good, sin becomes sinful beyond measure. And the law shows how serious sin is. The Jews believed and preached the more Torah, the more law, the more life. But the law doesn't grant life. Rather, it makes you cursed. The law doesn't give you power over sin. Rather, it shows the power of sin. The law didn't make Israel a law-abiding people. Rather, it showed that the only answer to the power of sin is Christ and his gospel. So let's apply, apply this to our lives. We, we are no longer bound by the law of Moses, 
But we are bound always to follow and obey God's law, his commands. Love God, love others, make disciples, meditate on his word, serve the church, pray for others, and so forth. But have you ever wondered, you know, why do I sometimes feel so apathetic, even indifferent toward the things of God? Why am I lacking in zeal for the Lord to follow his commands, to go hard after Christ? One answer to, to these questions is that we have a low view of our sin. And Jesus said, he who is forgiven little loves little. If we don't understand the nature of our sin and, and begin to feel the weight of it and, and truly be convicted of it, then we will never understand how precious the grace of forgiveness is. And as a result, we will love little the one who has forgiven us. And this low view of sin plagues also those who feel like they're stuck in sin. Maybe sometimes that's what you feel. Why can't I get over this sin? I just feel like I'm hitting a wall. I can't overcome it. Well, it's because you and I aren't seeing sin for what it really is. It's counterintuitive, but sin is what makes us blind to the true weight of our sin against God, against a holy God who is also loving. A sin blinds us. And the only way we can properly assess the weight of our sin is to remember whose law we are transgressing. It is to know more deeply the God we sin against. But sin blinds us. We have a high view of ourselves. Instead of seeing God in his holiness and his word, we want to look away from him. We don't want to think of him. We want to think of other things instead of having to look upon God's holy word. And this is exactly why we need the law of God. I put in your notes a quote from Luther. It's exactly as Luther put it. This monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast, needs a big axe. And that is what the law is, a big axe. And this is why scripture also repeatedly says, you know, take heed lest you fall. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Examine yourselves. Why repeatedly all these commands to watch yourself? Well, it's because we are not as righteous as we think we are. In our very flesh, we want to present ourselves as good. We want to cover up the bad with the good. And whatever is bad, we want to present it so that it doesn't seem as bad. So you're frustrated and annoyed, but you wouldn't call it anger. But it's not just sins of commission. Do we forget the weight of our sins of omission? You know, we tend to think the worst sins are those forbidden, those that we are told not to do. And we feel we're okay because we stay away from that. But what about those things we are called to do but don't do? Jesus said this to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected 
the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. We do one good work in neglect of the more important work. You know, I'm, I'm doing my homework, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and so I could be angry or harsh with people who bother me. I close my mouth because I don't want to say anything wrong, but I don't comfort when I should have comforted. I don't affirm and encourage when I should have. Sin also makes us rationalize away our sin. What do you do when you fall short? Do you ignore the fact that you transgress the law? Are you slow to repent? It's not that big of a deal. I'll deal with it more seriously later because I know that God forgives me. <laughs> or do we try to justify ourselves before others? We'll, we'll shift the blame to something or someone else. We'll make the excuse, because I was tired, it's because you did this or you did that. Do we excuse our sin by saying, you know, that wasn't my intention. I'm sorry you felt that way because that's not what I meant. It's like this water bottle where you have water in it representing indwelling sin. You know, you never think of yourself as an angry person, as greedy, as lustful, as envious, as fearful. But the circumstances of your life tip the bottle over and out comes all that sin and evil in you. It's not the circumstances to be blamed. And it's because you did this, I have every right to be angry with you. No, it's because this person is dressed in this way that I gave in to lust. Or it's because my friend got this job offer or gets into this school, of course I'm going to be jealous. There is no excuse for our sin. But looking at the law of God, uh, you might be wondering, you know, isn't there such a thing, though, as self-condemnation when you are excessively just discouraged over your sin? And that is a real thing. But the crazy thing, again, about the deceitfulness of sin is that self-condemnation is itself sin because then it becomes all about you and how you have failed to meet the standard of righteousness and how you want to atone for yourself instead of turning to the atonement of Christ. And by all this, we're not after a miserable, morbid lifestyle where we're just always feeling guilty over our sins and failures. That's not what we're after. What we're after is that there is no true joy, no true devotion to Christ apart from understanding what Christ has done for us, the sin that he bore in our place. And a Puritan has once said this, the higher the springs of godly sorrow rise, the higher the tides of holy joy rise. His graces will flourish most, who evangelically mourns most. And that's what we're after. We want to cherish and treasure the promise of grace so much more, but we can only do that if we let the law of God really show us the seriousness of our sin.
And the promise of God is greater than the works of the law. So if the law cannot save us, and if it exacerbates and intensifies our sin, then how does the coming of Christ change everything? We'll read the last section, uh, verses 23 to 29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the Jews exalted the law of Moses that it would abide forever. But the law of Moses was never meant to be in place forever. Notice the terms of time in this section. Verse 23 says, until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, until Christ came. Verse 25, we are no longer under a guardian. The law of Moses was always meant to be temporary. It was temporary, and it was also meant to be supervisory. Notice the word guardian in verses 24 and 25. The law was our guardian until Christ came. We're no longer under a guardian. Now, in those New Testament days, a guardian was usually a household slave who took care of young children. They made sure that the kids did their chores, watched over them, like today's babysitter. But as the child grew up, the guardian would no longer be needed. Well, in the same way, the law of God functioned in a supervisory role, watching over Israel until Christ would come. So the Jews had thought that they belonged to the people of God because they were given the law of God. And now with the coming of Christ, what makes you the child of God? What makes you belong to the people of God? It's not if you possess the Mosaic law, but if you possess Christ. If you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you through faith, And because you are united to Christ, you are Abraham's seed. You are son of God. You're an heir according to promise, not because of anything you've done. Notice the word sons of God. Now, some translations uh, translations render it a children of God. And and that's obviously true. We're all children of God. But um, I think that when you... Translated that way, you kind of miss the significant cultural understanding here. Even women who believe in Christ are called sons of God, and obviously not in a way that erases femininity. Verse 28, male and female are both in Christ. But the, the important point is that socially and culturally at the time, women were looked down upon, enjoyed less privileges. Yet in Christ, They enjoy in the same way what sons back then did, which is an inheritance. So it doesn't matter whether you're female or male, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. If you're in Christ, we're all heirs of God, 
and heirs of the kingdom to come. And I want to think upon the implications of of this truth in Galatians 3.28, and I'll wrap it up, this truth that you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, Something that was encouraging for me that I heard uh, from this past weekend at retreat. Um, I heard this from the other staffers. Um, And me personally as well, it was great to see you guys interact with the younger ones, with the junior hires and high schoolers at Lighthouse. In in the family games, you guys were involving them and interacting with them. And I think it was a great picture of this truth, that you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I know that the other staffers were encouraged by that as well. And I want to say we can excel still more. Because this truth, and the more we consider it, is a very convicting truth, I'm sure, for all of us. Because we will always want to judge others. We will always have that temptation to judge the value and worth of someone and thinking we're better than them and even using them to gain what we want, whether it's comfort from this person or emotional closeness from this person or feeling accepted And that's what we want, rather than thinking, what would Christ want? What would be best for the other person? What would be most loving for this person? And what would be best for others around us? And we've uh, talked about this before when we went over chapter 2 between Peter and Paul. But the question, I think, is important for us to consider, even in Beacon, but also here at Lighthouse, you know, what draws you to one person over against another person? What makes you want to avoid a certain person or people? And this doesn't obviously mean mean that we don't exercise wisdom for for healthy distance, for God-honoring boundaries, but would we rather not engage with certain people in the church out of fear or love of self or discomfort, or frankly, because we just don't feel the need to. I know that for many of you, you are pursuing and actively promoting and demonstrating unity. And that is a blessing and and something that stirs all of us up, and I say that for myself too. But I want to let this truth once again cause us, each of us, to consider our interactions with one another. Is the most important thing what feels good to us, whether it'll be comfortable or if it'll feel awkward? Is the most important thing, rather, that we are one in Christ in this question, how can I love you? How can I show interest in you, even if I'm not naturally interested in your interests? How can I listen better to you instead of just talking about what I want to talk about? And how can I learn from you instead of communicating that you're not worth my time? And we can't chalk this up to personality, that I'm just an introvert or I'm not really sociable. Maybe it is our sin, our fear of man, our lack of love, or that we just don't care for people. And what's at stake here? is our own holiness and our own happiness with God. And what's at stake here is the testimony of Christ 
before a watching world. So Beacon, there is no end to the things that can divide the church, whether it's our ethnicity, our school, our personality, our sociableness, our interests. But because of Christ and by the grace of God, we can show how the gospel not only transforms us as individuals, but how the gospel transforms us together as a community of God's people. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, we praise you, we look to you, and we are not afraid to look and behold your truth and your word. We know that we will fall short. We know that we will sin. We know that, God, there is in us great potential for great sin. But, Father, we are not afraid because at the the same time, we know that Christ is in us. We know that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. And we know that we can walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And so, Father, help us to go before the Word and be open, honest, and bare before the Word of God. God, that we would consider our ways and that we would confess and repent where we need to and that we would see and feel and know the true joy of what it is to be forgiven and transformed by the power of the gospel. And God, would you let the small group discussions be unto that end, to your glory, in your son's name. Amen.